So in October 2017, my family and I traveled out to Sierra Madre to participate in a candidating weekend here at Christ Church. And we came out for, it was the, you know, for the congregation to discern whether or not God was calling us to come and to be the next uh, lead pastor of this church, and also for us to discern whether or not we felt like God was calling us out here to this place. And as part of the candidating weekend, they put together a dinner with a bunch of leaders within our church. And at that dinner, I sat next to Scott Garland. And he shared with me the story that you just heard. And as I sat there and I listened to this very remarkable story from this very remarkable man, I found myself just, on the one hand, feeling very impressed. You know, I walked away from that night thinking like, wow, what a remarkable person Scott is and his wife Karen. I mean, uh, Karen is just this incredible woman of faith. And what a powerful work that God did in their life to kind of carry them through this very, very difficult time. But then I also found myself asking the question like, I wonder how I would respond if I went through that. And would I find myself moving into a space of bitterness and anger, or would I be leaning into trust and and deeper faith, even as, as Scott shared in his own journey? And you know, many of us go through different seasons, we go through different moments in our life that for us are defining. Uh, They may not be as dramatic as Scott's moment. They may not be uh, that dark and that painful, but all of us go through different moments where we face ourselves with the question, are we going to move in this time and place into deeper levels of faith and trust, or are we going to grow bitter or maybe proud or whatever it is that, that might surface for us in that moment? And for some of us, those defining moments are like Scott, periods of dark, deep valleys. Other times they are mountaintop experiences. Uh, Sometimes it might be a moment where you go through financial implosion and everything falls apart. I wonder if anyone out there has ever experienced something like that. Or you go through financial success. But whatever it is, God might use a moment, a time and a place in your life in order to kind of basically bring you to a fork in a road. And the road that you choose in that moment will make all of the difference in your life. Now, it's not just true for us as individuals. Oftentimes, churches go through defining moments. You know, I think about the history of this church that we are a part of. This church has been in existence for over 130 years, which that's a very long time, isn't it? And you know, the the very beginning of this church was a defining moment. There were 13 believers that gathered together in 1886 and sought to form a new church family. And it was defining for them. They needed to take a new step of faith and risk and trust. Then, of course, a little bit later, as this church began to grow in 1927, there was another defining moment in the history of our church when uh, some believers decided to buy this land that we're meeting on right now and build this facility and basically make an investment in the future of this church, make an investment in reaching generations ahead. And then, of course, in the 60s, there was another defining moment in this church's history and life. In the 60s, uh, this church had dwindled down to about two dozen families. Uh, Almost everyone was over the age of 60 or 70 years old. There was just a few young families in this church. And at that time, they made a decision to call a new young pastor whose name was Dick Anderson. 
And he came here in 1968, and at that time and at that season, a new group of believers were called upon to make a step of faith and to take risks and to make investments into the future. And I believe right now we are in a defining moment as a church. We are in a season where we've, we've, the last decade or so of the life of this church, we've seen some decline, and this church has grown older. But in the last couple of years, God has begun to do a new thing among us. And we believe that God has a good future ahead of us. And I believe, I've said this before, and I know many of you believe that our best days ahead are as a church. Do you believe that? And so God has good work ahead of us, but right now we're in a defining moment that is going to require greater faith and trust and sacrifice and risk for us to step into a greater level of participation in the mission that God has for us in the future. And so as we stand in this kind of defining moment, as many of us experience kind of defining moments in our own lives, what we're going to do is we're beginning a new series this morning where we're going to look at some defining moments in the life of the disciples. We're going to look at some time in their life where Jesus took them to places where he drew a line in the sand. He brought them to a fork in the road where he called upon them to take a greater step of faith and to take greater risks and make greater sacrifices. And so beginning today and in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at some of these defining moments in the life of Jesus and his disciples and see how it speaks to us in our own lives in this defining moment for us and in the defining moments that we might find ourselves in individually. But I want to begin our series this morning by looking at really the moment that became defining for everything else in the life of the disciples. And it was that initial moment where Jesus spoke those words, follow me, and the disciples responded faithfully to that call. And so I want to draw your attention to the original call story of Simon and Andrew, of James and John, found in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 1. It begins like this in verse 14. It says, now after John was arrested, now stop there. This is a time marker, and it's to tell us that the era of John the Baptist, actually the era of all of the former prophets, had now come to an end. And now a new era marked by the ministry of Jesus, where he has come to bring to bear on earth the healing, restorative, peaceable kingdom of God among us has begun. And look at what it says. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, putting us all on notice that a new age has dawned. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then notice right after Jesus announces that the the inbreaking of God's healing, restorative kingdom has begun, notice the very first thing that he does, verse 16, it says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. Isn't it interesting? This is the first place in the gospel where Jesus looks two or four men in the eyes who have names and faces, and he speaks to them. And notice the very first thing he says It's the simple phrase, follow me, follow me. 
You could say, if you wanted to sum up Christianity in its essence, it could be summed up in this phrase, follow me. You know, very often, uh, uh, religious people get on about all of the wrong things, and sometimes uh, people go to churches in order, uh, you know, for the same reason that they listen to AM talk radio or Fox News, or they uh, read the editorial page in the New York Times, and why is it that you read the editorial page in the New York Times or listen to, to watch Fox News or listen to AM talk radio? Typically, it's not to have your own opinions and ideas challenged, is it? It is basically to have somebody reaffirm that you're right and everyone else out there is wrong after all. And many times, that's why people go to church, uh, to reaffirm that they're right and everyone else outside is wrong. But listen, that's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is about following Jesus. You know, it's funny, uh, I, had some, I had a friend who... Um, a very unchurched person, and uh, she got to know Alicia and I, and one day we're sitting around, and she said, you know, um, she said, you guys are Christians, right? I said, yeah. She said, we, we, we met some other people, and they called themselves Christ followers. She said, is that like the really serious type of Christian? You know, are there two versions of Christianity? You know, there's kind of the entry level, but then there's the step up version. But listen, Being a Christ follower, being somebody who follows Jesus is not the step-up version of Christianity. It is Christianity. Christianity, in its essence, is the faithful response to that call from Jesus, follow me. But what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it mean to, 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 to really be a church that is centered and that's built around this call from Jesus to follow me? And I think Jesus actually helps us answer that question in this little story. In some ways, this story gives us a window into what it really means to follow Jesus. And I, and I think what we're going to see in this story is that to follow Jesus means at least three, three things. Number one, I think what um, he's showing us here is that following Jesus, when Jesus says, follow me, what he is calling us to is, number one, allegiance to the person of Jesus, Look back at the story. Look at what it says. It says, again, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. There's an image of the Sea of Galilee. This was actually the venue of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the main place where he spent most of his time in his earthly ministry, which isn't that just a gorgeous place to do ministry? Isn't it a gorgeous place to do just about anything? Well, Jesus was there passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So the fishing industry was huge in the, around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the, 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 there was said to be um, maybe over 300 fishing boats that regularly practiced kind of a, a commercial fishing trade around the sea. There were 16 ports. Uh, this is an image of an archaeological find that dates back to the first century. Uh, this has been called the Jesus Boat, and it's, uh, it's an archaeological artifact of a first century fishing boat. Um, it probably looked something like this in its heyday. But what these fishermen were after was a prized fish that existed there in the Sea of Galilee. It was the red-bellied tilapia. 
And people from all over the Roman or the Greco-Roman world longed to have this fish. It was a real delicacy. And so they would catch it and they would fillet it and then they would put it on the grill and then they would put it in a warm tortilla with a little mango salsa, a couple slices of avocado and a nice crema sauce. And they would just enjoy the fit. You're feeling it, right? The fish tacos. And that's what they were thinking around the Greco-Roman world. We love this stuff. And so Simon and Andrew, James and John, they were in the fishing business. Now, don't think about these guys as kind of impoverished. No, they, were, they had a vibrant, effective fishing business. They owned boats. Uh, they had hired hands. Uh, they were making money. They were, they were doing business. But right in the middle of their workday... Right in, in, in the middle of them out there on the lake with their father and, and cleaning their nets, and, and they're in the middle of work, Jesus shows up. And he speaks this word, follow me. And I want you to notice how they respond. Notice when Jesus says, follow me, you notice what it says. The first thing they did, it says, they left their nets, and then they left their father, and then they followed. It's interesting when uh, Peter looks back on his own life at one point in the Gospels, and Jesus tells the rich young ruler, uh, if you leave your, your resources and you come follow me, you will have treasure in heaven. Peter picked up on that and he says, we've left everything, Jesus. What are we gonna get? But it's interesting, Peter frames his own life of following Jesus as a life that first began with leaving. He left his career, his fishing boats. He left his possessions. He left his father. He left family. Now, it wasn't an absolute leaving because, of course, as the gospel writers go on, you see that they still have uh, in their possession a boat that goes back and forth, oftentimes across the Sea of Galilee. Peter, at one point in the gospel, goes back to fishing, A little bit later in this chapter, he visits his parents' house. So he's not, uh, it's not an absolute abandonment of his possessions and of his family and of his career. It's a relative abandonment. But I think what it's saying is that in following Jesus, all of a sudden, Peter had a new priority in his life. He had a new center out of which his own life orbited around. In other words, Jesus became his supreme passion. He made Jesus and Jesus' kingdom and his values and Jesus' own opinion of him and the way Jesus viewed reality became definitive for Peter and, and, and Andrew and for James and John, and they oriented their entire life around Jesus. In other words, when someone responds to the call from Jesus, follow me, what it means first and foremost is that they pledge their absolute allegiance to Jesus and to his kingdom. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this. He said, when we are called to follow Christ, we are summoned to an exclusive attachment to his person. And I was kind of think, I was trying to think if there are other places in life where this kind of attachment to a single person appears. And the only thing I could think of is in the vows in marriage. Now, I'm a pastor, and so I perform a lot of weddings. One of the things I don't allow people to do is write their own vows. And I don't like them to do that because they never know what to write. 
They always write about every way in which they're feeling on this day and how they feel so in love and this, that, and, and all this other thing. And all of us who are sitting there watching the wedding say, look, we don't care how you feel today. It doesn't matter. Or maybe that's just how I feel because... <laughs> What I want to know is, are you committing your life to this person until death do you part? That's the real question on the wedding day. And then there's that phrase in the vows where we say, forsaking all others, I cling to you. And when you become a follower of Jesus, it's as if you say, forsaking all other allegiances, all other masters, all other core priorities, forsaking all others, I now cling to you, Lord Jesus. Jesus, you are the supreme passion. You are the Lord in my life. Now, I I think when we hear this sort of things, it can smack some of us as fanaticism. You know, like, wow, that just sounds so extreme. You know, and I think within uh, kind of American uh, understanding, you know, we think of of Christianity as kind of existing upon a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, you know, there's the religious hypocrites. And these are the people who profess to be a follower of Jesus, but they don't line up in their life like Jesus. And we don't like that. That's religious hypocrisy. But on the other end of the spectrum are religious fanatics. And these are just the extremists, you know, that we just don't like. And, oh, you know, they're just such extremists. You know, they're just so... Christian, you know? And of course, it's true that fanaticism can be a problem in our world, and sometimes fanatics and extremists become fanatical and extreme, self-righteous, judgmental, and critical people. And of course, that's not what Jesus is calling us to here. But nor is Jesus calling us to moderation, You know, when Jesus says, follow me, he puts it like this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. Does that sound like moderation to you? Take up your cross, be willing to die? No, Jesus doesn't call us to moderation. Nor is he simply calling, uh, you know, a few good men and women, you know, a few marine types you know, to a real radical form of Christianity, the rest of us can live compromised lives. No, Jesus calls you. He calls me. He says, if anyone, here's what it's going to cost you. Listen, fanaticism, extremism is not the problem. It's the wrong kind of fanaticism. It's the wrong kind of extremism. You know, when um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was put in the Birmingham prison, He wrote a letter to a group of pastors who had accused him of being a religious fanatic. They said, you're so extreme, can't you be more moderate? And in his response, Dr. King said this. He said, the question is not whether we will be extremists. He says, everyone is an extremist for something. He says, the question is, what kind of extremists will we be? Some of you are extremists for that game that's going to be played next Sunday. And for a team that's playing that game. And uh, some of us, are, are, we're kind of extremists for, you know, any number of things. But Dr. King says, the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? He says, Jesus Christ was an extremist for love and truth and goodness. And we are called as a follower, when we hear this call from Jesus, follow me, 
Faithful response means to pledge our loyalty and our devotion to Jesus. Forsaking all others, I cling to you. You define me. You call the shots in my life. You are Lord. I will not follow you if, but I will follow you regardless. So number one, following Jesus means allegiance to the person of Jesus. But secondly, to follow Jesus, when he says, follow me, it also includes a devotion to the way of Jesus. Now, again, looking back at our story, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And then going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets in the middle of work, and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they followed him. Have you ever wondered what was it that caused these men in the middle of a work day to leave everything to follow a perfect stranger? You know, they didn't have the four gospels at this time. Now, one answer to that could be There has never been a more beautiful and compelling figure in all of human history than Jesus. And so when Jesus speaks, you attend to that voice and you follow. And I think that's one answer. But I think another answer is that when they heard the call from Jesus to follow me, what they heard was an invitation to do something that other young men in the ancient world were being invited to do by other rabbis and leaders in the first century. Namely, they were being invited to apprentice themselves to a master teacher. The word disciple in the original Greek is the word methetes, and the word is tr- it's, it could be translated as learner. And a disciple is somebody who attaches themselves to a master teacher in order to learn a body of teaching and to learn to imitate and practice their way of life and then to carry forward their mission in the world. Now, of course, in the first century, Jesus wasn't the only one to have learners, to have apprentices, to have disciples. John the Baptist had disciples, and the Pharisees had disciples. And these were guys who gathered around them to learn a body of teaching and to learn a way of life and then to practice in their mission. And it wasn't just, you know, in the first century. I mean, Buddha had disciples and Socrates had disciples. And these were folks that attached themselves to these leaders and teachers to learn a body of teaching and then to practice and imitate a way of life. And so when these young men heard Jesus issue the call, follow me, what they were hearing was an invitation to attach themselves to him as their rabbi, to learn his teaching and to practice his way of life. Now, it's important to point out that in the first century, they were not simply about learning a body of teaching. You know, very often in our own church environments, we're all about learning doctrine. And so uh, learning propositional truths is of great importance. And of course, that was a part of what discipleship involved and included. But for them, it was way more than simply learning a bunch of propositional truths. They were learning from their master a way of life. In fact, it was common among the ancient rabbis, you know, if the rabbi, you know, um, he, he had a group of disciples around him. Those disciples would follow that rabbi everywhere he went. 
And if the rabbi fasted three times a day, then their disciples would fast three times a day. If the rabbi had a special blessing that he spoke over the food, then the disciples would engage in the special blessing over the food. If the, if the rabbi had a very peculiar way in which he engaged with uh, people who are on the margins of society, then the disciples would embody that own practice in their way of life. And this is what Jesus was inviting his original followers to do, not simply to learn his teaching, but to begin to practice his own way of life. Jesus would later put it like this. He says, when a disciple is fully trained, they will be like their master. And so what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means to learn his way of life. Now, of course, what does this assume? It assumes at least two things. Number one, it assumes that you and I need help on how to live. You know, it was uh, the the great philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre who said that everything has been figured out except how to live. Now, if you have life figured out, like if you don't struggle with anxiety and fears and anger and bitterness and uh, struggle to forgive other people, if you, if you know how to love your next door neighbors really well and care for the poor really well, like you just got life down, then discipleship is just not for you. But if you, like me, need help to know how to be a better father and a better husband or wife or student or son or daughter or employee or manager or whatever. If you need help, then discipleship is for you because when you attach yourself to Jesus, you learn his unique way of life in this world. You see, Jesus Christ, as Dallas Willard points out, was not simply nice. You know, he says in a lot of our imagination, you know, Jesus was just a really nice person. He went around, you know, patting the little children on the heads and being nice to all the outcasts. Jesus, of course, he was nice, but Jesus was also brilliant. Jesus was the smartest person to ever walk the face of the planet. And get this, he said, I came so that you might have life. I came to teach you how to live. Dallas Willard goes on, he says, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, he says, when I was growing up, people taught me to share the gospel like this. They, they said, you go up to somebody and you say, if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? He said, I don't like to walk up to people and ask them, what if you die tonight? What are you going to do then? He says, I like to ask people, what if you don't die tonight? Who's going to teach you how to live? And listen, what is Christianity about? What is following Jesus about? It's about learning how to live from the master. And the place we learn how to live from our master is in community with others who are trying to live well from the master Jesus. You know, when I was growing up, it was really popular for uh, people to talk about discipleship in terms of uh, me, I'm a leader, and so I have somebody that I personally am discipling, and you would walk around and say, who are you discipling? Of course, that's a valid question. Who are you mentoring? Who are you investing your life in? 
But you know, there is also another question you can ask, which is, do you want to just attach yourself to one person to live how to live, to learn how to live from that one Christian? Because if you attach yourself to me, you're going to learn how to live certain, you're going to learn certain things from me. And then other things that I do, you will not want to learn. It takes a community of people to learn from in order to learn how to be a follower of Jesus. And I think a real important question that we need to ask ourselves, Christ Church, as we move into the future, is are we growing into a community of discipleship? Is our character more and more being transformed into the likeness of Jesus? Is this what we are about in the world? Is learning how to practice the way of Jesus? And so number one, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, number one, it means allegiance to the person of Jesus. Secondly, it means devotion to the way of Jesus. But thirdly and finally, to follow Jesus means participating in the mission of Jesus. Notice what he says. He says, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men or fishers of people in a more gender inclusive sort of way, which is certainly what Jesus meant. But what does it mean to be a fisher of people? I mean, if you stop and think about it, that almost sounds like a little bit of a negative metaphor, doesn't it? Because um, fishing is not a good situation for the fish, is it? Like it gets chopped up and it gets cooked and it gets eaten. So sometimes, actually, in every case, uh, fishing does not go well for the fish. (laughs) And you know, sometimes... The church's efforts to engage in mission do not go well for people. Jesus actually criticized the religious leaders of his day because he said, you traverse heaven and earth in order to get one convert. And when you win them over, you make them twice as much of a son of hell as yourself. And very often, some you know, religious communities go out and they try to convert people, and their very efforts wind up training and forming people who are self-righteous and judgmental and critical and very much ugly to be around. And that's certainly not what Jesus is calling his followers to. You know, in the ancient world, the, the sea was a, a metaphor. And symbolically, the sea was a place of darkness and chaos and evil. And so I think what Jesus is getting at is he's saying, look, I want you as the church to be agents in my work to draw people out of the darkness and out of the addictions and out of the bondage and the anxieties and the fears and out of all the dysfunction and the sickness and everything that's wrong in this world. I want you to be an agent of mine to draw them out so that they can enter into my light and my love and my healing." And this is the mission of the church, is to join with Jesus in this work of going out and drawing people out into lives of light and love and healing. Now, of course, Jesus is not presenting us as heroes in this story. You know, we are not the people that ultimately are rescuing people. Rather, we are beggars showing other beggars where they can find bread. 
And the bread that we have found is the grace and mercy of Jesus. He is our light. He is our healing. He is our salvation. And so our desire as a community is to draw people out and to point them to Jesus. This is the mission that he has given us. Now listen, as we move forward in the weeks and in the months ahead as a church, it is God's call upon us to follow his son, Jesus. It is our responsibility as a church to give our primary allegiance to the person of Jesus. It is our call as a church to practice the way of Jesus and to learn his life and help others learn his life. And it is our call to participate in the mission of Jesus. That is what God is calling us to be about as a church. Next week, we are going to be sharing with you some really kind of important, exciting news about some work that we are going to engage in as a church in the uh, next couple years. We're going to seek to renovate our facility, and we're going to make some strategic investments in our operating budget. And so next week, you'll want to come back and hear all about that. We're going to hand out a brochure to kind of let you know about what's going on. But I want to make this point this morning. The reason why we are doing this is because God has called us as a church to be an agent in his mission in this world. And my deep desire for us as a church, the deep desire of the elders, the leaders of this church, and the desire of most of you in this room, like I don't really care whether or not we ever become a mega church. I think the celebrity pastor thing is a joke. But what I care about is our health as a church. And what I care about is us being faithful in the mission that Jesus has given us. And so next week, we're going to be sharing with you some very strategic ways in which we feel like God is calling us to kind of take the first steps into growing more and more into effectiveness in the mission that God has given us and being a faithful presence of Christ in this community. And so come back and, um, you know, be here for that. But I want to close just with this. You know, as I look at the call of Jesus upon my life to follow him, it feels, to be quite honest, a little bit overwhelming and daunting. To imitate the way of Jesus, to walk in his way. You know, the Apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I do not have the confidence to stand before you all and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because to be quite frank, there are some areas in my own life where I am just really trying to figure it out when it comes to imitation of Christ. And really, as, as we look ahead as a church, and, and, and we deeply desire to be this church that's faithful to Jesus, that's walking with Jesus, that's a community of discipleships, that's making disciples in Sierra Madre and in San Gabriel Valley and out being agents of his mercy and justice in the world, like, as we move out, like, that feels daunting. But here's the good news of this text. According to Jesus, at the end of the day, this kind of transformation into this kind of compelling community, into this kind of compelling uh, individual, into this kind of compelling humanity is not dependent upon you and me alone. Jesus says, I will make you become. You know, in the ancient world, 
All the commentators point this out. They say, the thing that causes Jesus' call upon his disciples to stand out among all of the other kind of groups that were uh, making disciples in the first century is that Jesus calls personally his disciples to himself. In the ancient world, like if you wanted a rabbi to take you on, you would go up to him and you would have to show him your chops. You would have to show him, you know, that you could memorize, you had memorized the book of Deuteronomy backwards and demonstrate that for him and kind of like show your worth. And he would say, well, maybe if you're worthy, you can be my apprentice. Jesus stepped into this little podunk seaside village in a backwoods part of the Roman Empire. And he walks up to these guys who really didn't have a whole lot going for them. And he said, I am going to make you into something that on your own you could never become. And this is the promise of Jesus upon our life, is that he will make us into something that on our own we could never become by his own grace and spirit and love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you that you have spoken this good word over our life that you will make us become all that you desire us to become. I pray, oh God, that you would enable us by your spirit to submit to this process of transformation in our own lives. I pray, oh God, that you would help us as a church family to submit to your lordship in the life of this church. That you would be our greatest priority, that you would be our greatest treasure in love. God, we pray that you would use us for your purposes and for your glory in this world. And we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.